Yeah, I'd like to add that taking responsibility for the thoughtware that you're using is revolutionary because just because we're using certain ways to think does not mean that's the only possible ways to think. And if we simply duplicate or use the, the ideas or perception models or the frameworks that we inherited from our parents or from the society, essentially what power do we have to create anything different from what's already existing? And if I looked at my parents and saw how they were relating, um, if I had to restrict myself to their framework or their level of intimacy, God, I, what, what would my life be like? I would be really dead somehow. And I'm so grateful that you've created this framework for people with courage and people, people with boldness and, and curiosity who can actually question the, the framework that we were given for how to be men and women and humans together in various kinds of relating and give ourselves some new possibilities about that. That's really revolutionary and so I'm, I'm glad to be part of the revolution here. <laughs> so I understand that you probably got the four body model from reading the book Radiant Joy Brilliant Love or in German it's Wahre Liebe im Alltag and that book was written I think I wrote that in 2000 I don't know seven I guess so this is 10 years ago um, I'm not one of those authors who stops researching after writing a book I've kept researching and this is dangerous because you actually I've I've learned some things I've upgraded my thought work since I wrote the book and it's really difficult to um, make a recall on 10,000 books that are out there in private bookshelves all over the world and say I'd like to rewrite chapter 7 like this so um, since since the book uh, we've discovered a fifth body so I'm actually using a, a model of five bodies which is the physical body obviously that has organs of sensations that are touch and tell and smell and taste and sight and all of this and warmth and pressure and friction you know all kinds of vibrations and all these sensitivities in the physical body and there's there's the intellectual body that has this mind with thoughts and thoughts or opinions or perspectives or concepts or models or um, and also attention comes from the mind now we have this emotional body, which is the heart with four feelings, anger, sadness, fear, and joy, and also emotions that are mixed out of those feelings, kind of like if those are the four primary colors in the feelings world, then you could mix anger and sadness together and get depression if you want, or you could mix sadness and fear together and get isolation or despair if you want. And like that you can mix the feelings together or the emotions together and get these other feeling sensations and then we have the energetic body which is actually a subtle form of the physical body <clears throat> it has its own um, like it's it's a, it's a sensation of like who's in my space or who has more status or where's the power flowing is the power flowing this way or that way or what's what's my need in terms of position in the organization or position in this relationship or the flow of power is a lot it's all energetic but we also have a fifth body which is this archetypal body and to me this is the 
this is the this is sort of like the goal of of Mother Earth. She's created us with these five bodies so that we can become adult, like they get balanced in our uh, physical, intellectual, emotional, and energetic bodies so that we can serve what comes through our, our archetypal body, which is essentially instructions for our archetypal lineage. And this whole conversation, um, we've already entered a domain which is sort of far outside of the standard human intelligence thoughtware that we're given from modern culture. But those are the five bodies, and each of the five bodies have their own foods. You need foods for each kind of body, and each body has its own kind of intimacy, and its own kind of liquid state, which means like its breakdown state, as it's growing or changing or something like that. And um, its own kind of ecstasy. Each of, the, each of the five bodies has its own kind of ecstasy. So the ecstasy of the physical body is one of these glasses of fresh squeezed orange juice on Saturday morning at the cafe overlooking the river and um, intellectual ecstasy is like finding your car keys after you lost them something like that you know an aha moment and emotional ecstasy is feeling heard like being seen like like having the experience of having a shared a shared heart-to-heart -heart communication that's successful and the energetic body is being seen as a being being with someone who is being with you. And this being-to-being -being connection is an ecstatic energy body experience. And in the archetypal body, it has to do with an alignment or resonance of serving something greater than yourself, in usually a project or something that you're creating in the world that serves humanity or serves people, serves the village. And having this resonance between your archetypal lineages that's totally ecstatic, that you can actually collaborate and work together and create something really useful for the world. So these are ecstasies in the five different bodies, for example. These are big questions, so I'm going to dive right into something kind of close to my heart these days, if that's okay. Um, kind of personal and um, possibly upsetting. So, if that's okay, I would do that. <clears throat> Last year, I um, got divorced, and it's my second divorce, and uh, I didn't know, I didn't know what caused that or the consequences of that at the time. Um, I had theories about it or ideas about it, and um, those are interesting stories, but the one that I want to tell right now has to do with... Um, after leaving the place where I was living, which was June 8th last year, 2016, I hit the road and was alone for basically a year, going from house-sitting job to house-sitting job, or actually sleeping in a car, or just a rental car, wherever I was. I learned how to sleep in a car, and it's like, 
why am I doing this? What's happening? You know, I'm, I could live in a home, I could find friends, I could, but why did I need to be alone? And I, last September, I was in a Skype call, and in that call, it was one of these, it was one of these typed calls. And you know how the typed call, if you're, if you're messaging back and forth in a real safe place, in a real quiet mode, you can be pensive, you can like take each thought, one thought at a time. And during this conversation, I walked to the edge of a construct that was inside of me, an energetic construct called monogamy. And I was inside of this construct called monogamy for 40 years, about 39 to 40 years of my life, not knowing that I was inside of this construct. And the construct, as I can see now, it obviously came from watching my parents and watching my first wife's parents and my second wife's parents and watching my my teachers and my my role models and the whole the whole the whole thoughtware download for me was this construct and it was it was it was fused into the whole scenery that was in my life it was like they didn't say we'd now like to incorporate you and and suck you into the construct called monogamy it wasn't like that it was like this is reality this is the best way this is how it is and so i had been in there and I was functioning as a space holder for my partner, a woman. And so my, my model was basically the masculine as the man. I was being the space holder and she would be the space filler. And I thought this seemed to be functioning way better than almost anything else that I saw, but I didn't know uh, the restrictions of that. I didn't know the consequences of being in a monogamous space holding relationship like this. So. What happened was that I came to the wall of the construct and there was a door inside of me. And in the door, the key for this prison-like construct was on the inside of the door. And it was been there the whole time. The key is inside. So I walked over to the door, turned the key, opened the door, and it just shook me. It really shocked me to realize that there was more space. I actually, I actually could access more space of movement, more freedom of movement than I had in the construct called monogamy. And I took a step outside and I left the door open and I'm standing outside this construct now and I've been doing that since last September. And outside this construct door of monogamy, I could always turn around and run back in and lock the door again. It's, a, it's an option that I have. And so far I haven't done that. And so when I'm standing outside, it's like, okay, what are my options out here? And so one of the options that seems obvious is another construct called polyamory or free love, free sex. And that's a construct that's popular and is available to be studied or practiced in different places. For example, in some eco-villages such as Tamera in Portugal or Zeg near Berlin in Germany and other places. And they have clarity about that and can support and teach that. And it's pretty remarkable as a, as a set of possibilities for human beings to relate together, in my opinion. However, it wasn't attractive to me to go in there. So all of a sudden, I'm outside of one construct, not willing to go into another construct. And I'm, I'm in a space where I'm avoiding or whatever or, or imagining that I'm not in a construct. So then I'm still interested in five kinds of intimacies with another person because it's so 
ecstatic and nurturing in my life. It like feeds me and it, it's a creative source and it's inspiring and it's delightful. And I think it makes Gaia happy when I'm in five body ecstasy with somebody else who's in five body ecstasy and we're playing out our lives as human beings, um, creating, co-creating like that, collaborating like that. And uh, I then was also faced with this thing about holding space. So it turned out that when I, as a man, I'm holding space for a woman, then the woman only gets to show up within the constraints of the space that I can hold. That's her option. If she's going to be with me and I'm holding a space, she can show up in that space. And who I get to be with is not a free, a free and natural adult uh, woman. I, I get to be with a woman who's showing up uh, inside the space that I'm holding. And she what she gets to relate to is a space holder, somebody who's holding space for her, not as a, a free and natural man. So I also then stopped holding space for who, whoever, whatever woman I was with, whatever I was interacting with. I stopped holding this kind of relationship space for uh, the woman. And all of a sudden I, I discovered that, that women are uh, different than I ever experienced for the last 40 years in terms of in terms of um, their ability to um, shift or move or actually hold space for me in the processes that I go through. So sometimes she would hold space for me in my process. Sometimes I would hold space for her when she would go through a process. But in terms of holding space in general, neither of us were holding space. We were actually collaborating on a journey of intimacy together, a five-body intimacy journey, and being present and journeying in five bodies is, for me, the, the place where I am these days. I'm interested in that. That's kind of a long answer to your question. <laughs> and there's a lot more. Keep going. I want to take a step backwards, actually, and um, review sort of the purpose of human life. And um, it, you know, it's actually a personal choice what your purpose is. Most of us aren't aware that it, we have much choice about that because, for the most part, we're kept in a condition of survival. And the survival condition comes from modern culture having brought us through an education system that essentially cuts us off from our imagination and cuts us off from our feelings because feelings are bad. Anger is certainly bad because you might uh, be too loud or uncivilized or it's embarrassing or, or it's, you might hurt somebody or hurt yourself or it's out of control. And fear is really bad because it's just childish. What's there to be afraid of? And, you know, you have to be tough and strong and feel no fear. And mm -hmm. um, it's just embarrassing again. And it's weak. And sadness definitely is weak. Def sadness is childish, and it's so it's contagious. It's just it's just you shouldn't be sad because your your makeup runs. You look bad. You know things. And and so we have these three bad feelings, and then there's supposed to be this one good feeling called joy. But if you actually walk down the street joyous. People think you're on drugs. People think you are not taking life seriously. You haven't read the newspaper and the headlines. You don't actually um, 
probably you don't have enough work to do, obviously. You just, the time and energy to be happy. So it's not really okay to feel at all. So we're cut off from our feelings, so we go numb. And because if you meet somebody on the road and they say, well, how are you doing? And you say, well, I'm fine. What you actually mean is I feel numb. And that's what fine is. Fine means numb. So that's a, that's a hard resource to cut off because these feelings have a lot of energy and information that we can use as rocket fuel, actually, to deliver our archetypal lineage. But when we're cut off from that resource, we're not going to deliver our archetypal lineage. We're going to keep surviving in a, an economic ripoff system that, that makes us in a scarcity of money and um, creativity. It just cuts us off from that. So, <clears throat> so it's a um, it's a it's a um, quite of a, a handicap that we have being in the modern education system, which essentially augments the intellectual body to a point of obesity, to a point of completely distorted, uh, massive intellectual contents that have been shoved into our mind, and a um, uh, a physical body that's trained to kick a ball around a little bit and a, an emotional body that's like a shriveled up little heart and an energetic body that's just completely uh, uneducated and un, unrecognized and an archetypal body that's just forbidden like that. So um, how, how are we supposed to be in a creative relationship with another human being if we can't actually communicate from who, being ourselves in the present as a man or woman and, and communicate what we're feeling and what we want and don't want and what we're creating in the world, that together is really, is a huge step. And so how do you get, how do you get from this handicapped condition of being brought up in modern culture and modern education um, when everybody has the same handicap so we don't actually recognize it as a handicap, how do you get from there to a more internally four-body balance system so that your five, fifth body can turn on and you can actually do what you came here to do in life. Like, how do you do that? This is... <laughs> well, so, so <clears throat> this has been my life's journey, really. In 1975, I had this question. I was in college and I was... I went to college and I, and I sat down across from this lady at the, res, at the registration desk and she said, well, son, what would you like to study here at the university and I said well I'd like to study magic I want to learn magic and transformation and healing and paraphysics and metaphysics and she goes ha ah, stop there we have we have physics and so I studied physics for four years and by the fifth year I realized I wasn't learning really what I wanted to learn at the university and so I put up a sign around campus it said on Thursday night we're going to have a meeting and to talk about how we can possibly learn what we came here to learn at the university, but we're not getting to learn. So how can we learn this together? And I thought a few people would show up and we'd have a little discussion. Well, I'm sitting in the room and like 75 people show up in this room. And I'd never given a talk before in my life. And this, this room full of people, my buddy, he elbows me in his stomach and he goes, get up there, you have to go talk. And I go, bah, what's I supposed to do? <laughs> and so... I went up there. I can't remember what I said. I, I know I didn't pee in my pants, but I, I probably almost did. So uh, what happened was we ended up meeting every week. On Thursday night at 7.30, we had a meeting. And so our, the purpose of our meeting was to explore in the directions and study the things that we really wanted to learn. And so that 
I've been essentially doing that in every city I live in since 1975. And the thing is that the things that worked, the things that were remarkable, the things that healed somebody or brought them more into their own authority or their own center, that gave them their voice back, that gave them their ability to be not emotionally hooked, that allowed them to be present in a small here and a small now and a small personality, that they had freedom of movement, that they could actually make right angle turns at light speed in, in while negotiating space, navigating space and relationships and what's possible and how to create possibility when there isn't enough and how to kill possibility when there's too much. And like all of the things that worked, we, we captured. I'm a, one, of my, one of my neuroses is to write things down. So I just would write down everything that worked and eventually it came out as books. And so the books that I've written are handbooks for all the tools that we've learned about all this stuff. And we gave it the name Possibility Management. But what it really is, is a, is a treasure chest of tools that we have learned. And the, the first one is being centered. The first one is taking your attention and putting it on your energetic center, finding out which authority is outside of yourself you gave your center to, and then using your intention from your energetic body to move your, your energetic center onto your physical center, down below your belly button down in the middle of your body, that's your physical center. You put your energetic center on your physical center and suddenly you become centered. And when you are centered, which is the same thing that we study in yoga or martial arts or dance or fencing, you know, sword fighting, these things that acrobatics, ice skating, like all this is about centering. When you get your center back, you consciously have your center back, all of a sudden you start, you enter your body and you start getting feelings. But if it's not okay to feel, you're in trouble because uh, because it's a conflict. You get your center back and your power back, but your power comes partly as feelings, and you don't know what to do with that. It's this conflict. And so what we do is we raise our numbness bar to block off the conflict. And so that's a, it's a skill that we can unlearn. We can learn to actually lower our numbness bar, be centered, lower your numbness bar, and you all of a sudden get your feelings back, and you can start using them to create clarity, create boundaries, to say what you want, what you don't want. Like, for example, fear is one of the most feared of the feelings. Fear is one of the most negative of the feelings. And But if you actually think about it, if you're going to be intimate with somebody, if you're going to negotiate any kind of intimacy, including physical intimacy or intellectual intimacy, any kind of intimacy, you need fear to tell you exactly if you're too close, too far away, too fast, too slow, too hard, too soft. Is that the right tone of voice? Not right tone of voice. Like what's your intention? Is that the right intention or the wrong intention? This is all navigated by fear. There's this adage these days that goes around like it's either fear or love. If you have fear, you don't have love. And I'm saying this is a concept that's easy to understand that has no relationship to reality. Because as soon as you think about it, you need fear. You desperately need fine sensitivity in the domain of fear to navigate spaces of love happening. If you can't, if you can't feel your fear at, a, at low intensity levels, you don't have the guidance information to, to guide the spaces where ordinary, where extraordinary and archetypal levels of love can happen. So, so um, the point is, how do you get initiated? How do you, how do you grow up enough to be able to say what you want, ask for what you want, to create, take risks, to make connections with people, to 
even say hello from who you are to a person that's standing across from you in a way that they feel greeted and are feel safe enough to say hello back to you. And how do you how do you how do you do that? And so that's again it's my life it's been my life of research so far the last 40 years I've been researching authentic adulthood initiatory processes which which have been actually banned from modern civilization for really almost 6000 years since the beginning of the patriarchal empire because um <clears throat> the if you get your authority back you're not controllable so I was thinking today about how if people if people knew the totality of the experience of navigating five body intimacy journeys like the the rewarding nature the fulfillment the ecstatic um mm, pleasure of navigating five body intimacies with another adult man and woman that um people wouldn't go to work I mean what would you need money for you wouldn't need to buy another pair of shoes you people wouldn't go to war they wouldn't it would be a, really you might get killed and then you would not have the opportunity to negotiate the five body intimacies it would be what's the purpose of the war anyway i mean who's who's running it like so it would actually undermine civilization if people learn to be intimate in in five bodies with each other and so cool sex is a revolutionary act and um i encourage it as much as possible so it, but what i'm saying is tr don't expect to have cool sex after immediately listening to a talk like this i mean cool sex is going to happen step by step gradually one risk at a time it's based on a new set of thoughtware and a new set of skills so how do you learn thoughtware well if you think about your computer if you're going to upload new thoughtware into your computer you've got to actually remove the old thoughtware and then there's this place where the computer doesn't know what it is anymore for a while until you upload the new thoughtware and then it has an, a new functionality for you it has new features okay that's what we're doing with the human being it's very analogous the analogous part to watch out for is this middle state where there isn't any ground to stand on this groundlessness if you have studied any anything from a Buddhist teacher named Pema Chodron she says groundlessness the nature of reality is groundlessness she's she's a researcher the lady's a researcher and she knows exactly what she's talking about so how do you how we've been trained by modern culture that we have to know we have to have things we have to know answers we have to have knowledge we have and so what she's saying is actually entering reality which is where relationship happens which is where intimacy happens in reality starts from not knowing it's the complete opposite how are you going to be okay with yourself when you don't know how can you communicate relate be in connection from not knowing so this is just a new set of skills i mean what what i've come to the way i say it is human beings are designed to fly so what does that mean it means like if we have an identity that's 
clear for ourselves that we think, okay, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be with her or with him. I'm going to try to be like that so they like me. Or I'm going to, I'm going to look around for somebody who will like me if I'm like this. Or I know that who I want to be, who I want to love is, has these features. They want to have this, they'll, you know, handsome, strong, beautiful, you know, smart, you know, this whole checklist of this is who I, I want to, you know, my ideal partner thing. You know, it's all fake. The whole thing is like mind fucked. It's like really off the charts crazy because, because the nature of reality is groundlessness. Relationship happens in reality. Human beings are designed to fly. We're designed to function with each other in a play space where there is no ground. We're designed to navigate these spaces together. How do you do that? Well, we have this whole psychological identity system, this whole psychology, our beliefs, our attitudes, our the information that we have, like our knowledge, our, our stories, our interpretations, the meanings that we have given things, our old decisions about who we are and how life works and how do we work in the world with people like them, you know, how, who are we supposed to be, what success, like all of these things we figured out into a construct. This we, I call it the box. I call it, it's like our comfort zone or our identity. It's like our ego, our psychology. It's this box. And so here's our, and this is what we show people. And inside is this being. So this is our, we have the being and then our box. And if I'm going to be in relationship with somebody, well, usually our boxes kind of talk to each other. Hello, box. How, how are you? I'm good. Like, how are you? Okay. I have these opinions. This is right. This is wrong. Yeah, but that's not really right. You know, you, you're not right about what's right. This is what's right. And this is wrong. And if we find a box that we can kind of talk to, we call those people our friends. And if we find some where where we can get these unconscious psychological payoffs when we interact with each other, we, we, we like get married to them. So it's like that we, we find somebody that we, I, this part of myself that we call the gremlin part, the unconscious defensive part of the box, this gremlin can feed itself on a partner. And a lot of times relationships are a, um, a consistent gremlin meal for each other. So people come together and actually feed this unconscious negative part of themselves in the relationships. They have a little fight and then after they fight enough and the gremlins are full, then they can have some physical intimacy. So this is the fight and fuck syndrome. It's not really pleasant, but it's really, really common. And so the question is how, how do we, how can we become a, a person who has an ability to be present and relate in the space of groundlessness and one of those things is to discover that there's a gap between your being and your box. There's a gap between your being as your, your present being and your psychological system. There's a gap. And the gap doesn't have to be very big because what's in the back gap is nothing. But then what's possible in the gap is everything. So if you can locate your point of origin in the gap between your being and your box, and be intimate with another person who's located in the gap between the being and the box, then you can go on a five-body intimacy journey together for hours. And it's, it's ecstatic in five bodies, different bodies. And you never know what's going to happen next. And it's so entertaining. It's better than TV and movies and alcohol and, and uh, really uh, buying new shoes and like internet surfing. It's like it sort of destroys modern civilization. And... So what? I mean, uh, 
I'll shut up for a minute. You can ask the next question. <laughs> If you have your center, once you have your center, you can connect your center to the middle of the earth. You can connect your center with a grounding cord to the middle of the earth. So right now my grounding cord is silver with kind of glowing white on the outside. Different days, it's different colors. It's about this big around. It's flexible. It goes from my center to the middle of the earth and it gives me a grounding cord. And when I have my center and my grounding cord, I can basically make an energetic bubble around me, which is my personal space. So that personal space, once you make that, once you claim that, once you declare that your energetic space is your space, you have to clean it out because you have other people's energy in your space. And just from, from interacting with having no personal space before. So, so when you clean other people's energy out of your space, you give their energy back to them. You have kind of a void and nature abhors a vacuum so if you if you don't fill up your space with your own energy and information immediately it will get filled up again with more garbage so you can fill up your space with your own energy and information and all of a sudden you have a new experience of walking through the shopping zone you can put your arms out like fully out and walk through the shopping zone and take up space that you claim as your own and all of a sudden you'll find that your attention is no longer distracted by all the advertisements and all the, um, yeah, the people trying to flirt with you or people trying to make stories or opinions about you because their stories and opinions and flirtations, they, they come over and hit your bubble, but they get sucked down into the earth like a lightning rod. They just get sucked down into the earth and you have free space. So when you have this free space, you don't have to adopt the culture that surrounds you or was given to you by your parents. You actually can live in the culture that you design yourself that you would really love to live in, which gives you the chance to be vulnerable because you're safe, because you're protected and you can live in the space that you source yourself. So it's exactly what you described as a different culture where you can be vulnerable and present without uh, having to adapt to the patriarchal empire that surrounded you the whole time. So that means you might greet somebody and they say hello and you say hello and you go, they go why are you doing this? And I go well in my culture this is how I say hello because it wakes up my brain cells. It's like better than an espresso and I'm willing to wake myself up to greet you in the present moment and it's just how we say hello in my culture. So the other person goes, that's really weird. And I go, well, how do you guys, how do you say hello in your culture? And I go, well, we stick our hands out to each other. And they go, what's that for? Well, that's to show you I don't have any weapons in my hand. And I go, wow, that's a, that's a bizarre thing you're talking about. Why would you need weapons? So anyway, it opens up, it, you have this kind of curiosity about things that people take for granted in the culture that you're in, where whatever culture that surrounds you, you don't have to adopt to that culture. So if you make a space for yourself to reclaim your ability or your radical responsibility to source the culture that you would love to live in, you, are, you don't have to fear being burned at the stake right now. Like these days, they won't identify you as a witch right away and burn you at the stake. So that's, that's a great freedom right now we have.
I know what I'm. I know. I know what you're doing right now. I know what you're feeling right now. So thanks for feeling that. Yeah, this time right now, you have the freedom to be a witch. You can actually be a magician and a sorceress and an alchemist, and a an inventor. You can actually be that now. And and but we are so afraid to claim that to reclaim that because there were 700 years of inquisitions where people who were weird were burned by the church or the state, and their property was taken and. So the first thing our mothers taught us was to watch out for what the neighbors think because they might report you to the authorities and the authorities would come and just kill you. So that's not happening right now. So even though you made the decision in a previous life or whatever you want to call it, that to never show up as a powerful person or never to be unique or never to be yourself because you would get caught and killed, you can make a new decision now because you have different circumstances now. It's possible for you to make a new decision. And like I said, when you upgrade your thought where you will be in this liquid state where there's this groundlessness state, it's not a bad state to be in. You can, you can be okay through the groundlessness state. So um, I encourage you to, to reconsider the possibility of being yourself rather than trying to adapt yourself to the local culture. So that would be a foundation upon which you could start experimenting along the lines of what you're talking about. So. Women need to know that when a man is born in a patriarchy, he makes a maximum sacrifice to join the patriarchy. Women don't usually know this, and men also don't know this, but, but it's useful to know that when a man is born, he either has to join the patriarchy or die. And this is a huge, huge sacrifice, because if you join the patriarchy, essentially you don't get to be yourself. You sacrifice being yourself in order to be a patriarch. So most men make the sacrifice as babies, join the patriarchy, get trained to be a patriarch, duplicate all the patriarchal thoughtware for their whole life until such time as they're trying to be intimate with a feminine human being, for example, and the woman's going hello, and the man can't even be present as himself at all, cannot. He is unable to be present because he's implementing patriarchal thoughtware. This is devastating. This is devastating. I, I can hardly say how devastating that is to the possibility of relationship between a man and a woman. Now the women is easier because the women are the slaves. You know, they're, they're sexual objects and slaves in the patriarchal empire. They have the freedom actually of escaping the, the empire. That's their job actually. The slave's job is to escape the empire. So they can do this. You, and this is what's been happening for 50 years. You know, the women's liberation movement is far ahead of the men's liberation movement. So I've, I've worked with men for 20, 30 years trying to create spaces in which men can get out of the patriarchy. It is so difficult. Essentially, the man has to die and start over again from zero. And it's very scary. It's very scary to do that. And it's so important to do that. Every man that has escaped the patriarchy has a whole new life. It's creating a whole new future for himself, for his children, for his grandchildren who have a new role model to look at, somebody to, imp you know, to imitate who's, who's, who's not functioning in the, in the, the restrictive, you know, insane, adolescent, uninitiated thoughtware from the patriarchal empire. I mean, modern culture is centered upon child-level responsibility. How do you know this? Well, if you ask the question, 
when a child makes a mess, who cleans it up? The answer is the adults clean it up, right? Or the mom cleans it up. That's how you, that's how you know it's a patriarchy. Um, so modern culture is making huge messes with no intention at all of ever cleaning them up. You can just start naming the messes, you know, nuclear waste, plastic, you know, fracking, giving children brain drugs in school. They can't even be initiated into the army because the brain drugs are so destructive on the human mind, um, et cetera, et cetera. The agricultural system, this monoculture, just wiping out ecosystems, like using money as the basis of assessing value instead of using the natural balance of the ecosystem as a way of assessing value. It's like, um, et cetera, et cetera. So modern culture is making huge messes with no intention at all of ever cleaning them up. So modern culture is centered on adolescent child level responsibility. You can look at the political leaders you know, who are being elected at the top of the political hierarchies or the corporate hierarchies. These are uninitiated adolescents, mostly men, in the patriarchal empire. In the patriarchy, men do not have to grow up. So we have adolescents at the top of our power structures. So this is a design error. This is the, the hierarchy can be hijacked by psychopaths because as you climb the ladder in a hierarchy, those who can do whatever it takes to get the positions of power, get the positions of power. Those who do whatever it takes to get power are psychopaths. So that's why our hierarchical systems have been hijacked by psychopaths. And so this is our role model as men to follow that. And it's so painful that we just numb. That's why there's so much alcoholism and driving fast in your car and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Okay, for men to get out of the patriarchy is a big deal and there's nothing more worth it than doing that because otherwise how can you be in relationship as a man um, except as a patriarchal man, which is, which is ridiculous. There's not really any kind of relationship available that way. So as a woman, I would imagine it's pretty in a, a mode of desperation at this point because, because if a woman is looking for a man to interact with in a mature and... Um, free free floating way and a, a way of entering the nothingness and navigating five body intimacy spaces with a man the man has to be outside the patriarchy to do that and where are you going to find one of those where are you going to find one so i don't know you can take one who looks pretty good throw him on the ground put a knife at his throat and say fucking grow up get your get your ass in there get out of the patriarchy and then let him go and see what he does if he comes back any different do it again. If he doesn't come back different, get another one. You know, I mean, what else can you do? There are information sources such as this conference here, this online conference, where you can get ideas or you can get connections to possibilities, for example, or things you never thought of to try. So there's this and other other online resources. The, the limitation of, of this form of learning or understanding or change is that it, for the most part, goes in through the eyes and ears. It goes mostly into the mind and and it's and the mind can be wiped clean or uh, in a matter of three seconds by our habits by our old patterns by the grooves that we've used over and over again in our mind we just forget like oh go well, that's a wonderful idea tomorrow i'm going to do that tomorrow passes 
we don't do it. The next day, go, gosh, I could have done it. I'll do it next time. And then whoosh, another week goes by, and you go, what happened? Where I, I understood it was such a great idea. It's so clear, this model that I, I could just, if I just could do it, I would get new results. Well, new results don't come from that. New results do not come from understanding a new idea, a new model. They come from new behavior. Where does new behavior come from? New behavior comes from new actions. Where do new actions come from? It comes from new choices. Where do new choices come from? They come from new options. Where do new options come from? They come from from new thought work. Where did new thought work come from? It comes from a new context. The context is patriarchy. You're not going to get new behavior. By shifting an element of your context, which is your relationship to consciousness and responsibility, by shifting one element in your, in your context, you source your actions from a new point of origin. So that's what happens in initiatory processes, is your, your, your assemblage points get moved from their point of origin, where they originally are, to a new point of origin. If you put the origin in your, in your own center for radical responsibility, your context can change. You change your, your context where you're no longer putting your center in the patriarchy. You're no longer originating yourself in the patriarchy. You're originating yourself in this moment with no one to blame for the consequences, which is scary and it's wonderful at the same time. And so if you can get yourself into a group that meets once a week, you know, Thursday night at 7.30 to 10, every week and you meet three four five eight people maximum you come together and you start asking the questions exactly what you just said and maybe you get a book and use some exercises in the book or you read some distinctions and practice that or you have a set up a stage and you put two people on the stage and say okay talk to each other here's your partner or here's your father or here's your boss you know and start interacting with each other and the other people give them feedback and coaching about what worked and what didn't work we have such innate wisdom for solving other people's problems. It's so easy to see what doesn't work with the people on the little stage in your meeting. And then you go on the stage and go, then you get your support from your team. Pretty soon you have a team that's working together to support each other, to create new behavior, to shift the context of where they're starting from in each gesture. And that creates new behavior. And then you have new possibilities. So these little teams that meet once a week are so powerful. These, this is the biggest tool that I could possibly wish for people, is to get together and pool your resources from your experiences in life, your pain, like to share the stuff that you were just talking about, to share the physical abuse, the psychological abuse, the sexual abuse, the emotional abuse that we've had, to be seen, and then you can enter the present, because finally you heard what's been going on for you, you are seen and heard for what you've experienced so far, then you have a new chance to go somewhere else. It's a safe place to do your experiments. If people can't see what you're carrying in terms of your pain and your, your wounds and your history, you know, if people don't see that with you, you're pretending. You're at this level of pretending. And, it's, and you won't ever get to start new stuff. You have to just stay in this survival state. Well, if you can get to the present time with other people in a safe space where they just actually listen and, re and see you for what's been going on, you, have, you can just drop it. You can really drop it because you are seen. And from there, you can try new experiments. And this is where living happens. Living happens through these experiments that you try together. And you can challenge each other. Like you can go, okay, this time you, you talk to three people this week. Three people you never talked to before. And you ask these dangerous questions. Like, 
Um, I carry around a little bag with me that has little strips of paper on it that has dangerous questions in it. They're intimacy, exploration, experiment questions. And anytime nothing's happening, I pull one out and we start asking each other these questions and it just opens up these huge, wonderful spaces so you can make questions like this for each other and pass them around and you walk up to strangers and you can ask these questions. I mean, you challenge each other to do these experiments. Your life will be a, a different game. Your life will have a whole different flavor and your intimacy experiments will, will really expand. You can, um, anyway, in terms of tools, this would be the main tool I would offer is to get together every week, no matter what, even if it's only two people come together, you start there and you just keep doing this and pretty soon you'll have a whole shift of context where it's not just you alone fighting the world. You don't have to do this alone. You know, we do this in little groups. There's millions of people right now on the earth who are, who are hearing exactly what you're talking about. They go, how can we make use of this opportunity? And this is how, is <clears throat> no longer do it alone. Come together in little groups, really physical groups, not online groups, like really, there's people in your neighborhood, people in your apartment building who would want to do this with you. Just knock on the door and say, we're having a meeting on Thursday night, you want to come? What's it about? Well, it's about, um, being vulnerable. You go, what? You go, well, if you're a genius, you're going to be bored with modern society unless you get vulnerable with yourself and reality. And as soon as you're vulnerable, all of a sudden things are interesting. You can share yourself. You can be, okay, I'm coming. You know, you can, it's a safe place to, to do that. So I just, that's one of the main tools I would offer. There's some basic tools and skills that seem obvious, but we have been forbidden to learn them. One of those tools is to say stop. I, I couldn't believe it, but I was, it was, I was 39 years old before I could say stop. I didn't know this until I was in a training space and somebody, we did this exercise where Someone's, we were, this is what you can do, two people facing each other across the room. One person starts coming closer, the other one says stop. So you probably have heard of this. So, so it's, a, it's, it's, and then we give feedback and coaching to how effective the stop was. Where did the voice come from? Was it from your head? Was it theoretical? Was it philosophical? Did it have, did it go to the other person and land in them or did it go into the ground or did it stop here? Was your voice clear and powerful? What was your intention? Was there an intention behind the stop or was it just a concept? So it's a lot to learn about being able to say stop. So the girls who are, are being touched are, cannot say stop. They do not know how to say no. They are unable to say no. If you are unable to say no, you're also unable to say yes because your yes is a lie because it, is, it doesn't have the possibility of saying no. So in the work that I'm doing with people, the first thing I teach a woman is how to break somebody's nose. So it's, it's easy to do. You just explode from your center and you push your hand right back up through a person's nose. And there, if you do it, if you just go, ah, 
like this. Their nose is back in the part of their head, and you can walk away unmolested. If a dozen girls break the noses of the asshole, stupid, patriarchal, uninitiated boys who are abusing them physically, emotionally, and sexually, they'll stop. So one of the scariest things for me is that women in the patriarchy teach their, women, their daughters how to, how to be a, a, adapt, adaptive victims of the patriarchy. They teach their daughters. Uh, how about now? Is this better? Okay. I don't know what changed, but... So, do you want me to repeat something? Okay. So, one of the things that really scares me and surprises me is how or why mothers would teach their daughters how to be adaptive and survive in the patriarchy rather than to teach them to take care of themselves and be themselves as women. I'm sure that they're trying to do the best they can because they think that the patriarchy can't change. I'm sorry and happy to tell you that the patriarchy is over. The patriarchy is a dinosaur that's dying in its tracks. It has, it's already dead. It's a walking dead dinosaur. You do not have to conform from now on ever again to the patriarchal empire. Get in the new game. Do not be left behind in a stupid game world. Do not. Like, Learn, shift into the new thoughtware, shift into the skills of taking care of yourself as a woman to be a woman in the world, to connect with your sisters and to, you know, essentially face men and as and, and demand them to grow up, which means to be to get out of the patriarchy. Do not allow yourself to be touched or molested or abused or disrespected. Just forbid it. And you can do this when you when you have the capacity to break somebody's nose, which is a very painful experience. To have your nose smashed in is very painful. And you, it's, a, it's, a, it's like training a dog. You know, you, if, you, if you train the dog, it won't, it'll change its behavior if it's too painful to do it the old way. Well, humans are just like dogs. If it's too painful to do it the old way, they'll change their behavior. Well, any man who's had his nose broken by a woman will be hesitant to touch one again, to be abusive again like that. They will wake up a little bit, at least for a moment. Well, if one woman does it, people will think she's violent and aggressive. If two people do it, they'll think they're sisters. If five people, if five women do it, you know, they'll think it's kind of a club. If, if 25 people do it, they'll start thinking it's a movement. Well, guess what? It's a movement. So if you start seeing men with broken noses, you can go, yes. This is their first step to get out of the patriarchy, is to wake up to the fact that women can break your nose and you can't stop them. So that's what no means. No means... You don't, if you do that, I'm going to break your nose and you won't be able to stop me. This is a, and it's a, you don't have to break people's noses. You just have to be able to. And then when you say no, it's no, or I'm going to break your nose. You can walk down the street and feel great because you're, you're not a victim of somebody touching you when you don't want them to, you just break their nose. So this is the first thing I teach people in our classes is our workshops and trainings is how to break somebody's nose. This sounds really weird, but it's like, it changes your life. And it's a first step towards growing up. You know, I'd like to kind of go into a less aggressive and less, um, how do you say? 
less um, a more a rarer space, kind of a more delicate space or a more rare space kind of in this conversation because we've all been doing experiments in one way or another and that's why we find this subject of interest or that we know that sexual intimacy or cooler sex or being able to be ecstatic in five bodies and navigate these spaces is important to us is because we've, we've already been experimenting. So the people who are listening to this talk today and the people who are, who are in the conference here are, are really edge workers. These are people who have realized that the limits of modern culture um, are, do not provide what they're asking, asking for and looking for. It's not, it's not providing what they want and need to live a life as in dignity, as representing you know, Gaia's possibility for us. Gaia's creation. And I'd just like to talk about um, the um, how do you say this? It's like the this the gateways that will open up when a man can can listen and be connected enough with a woman who is can relax and say what she wants she what she wants and and doesn't want but mostly what she wants and so when I'm talking more on the archetypal level almost. I'm talking it if you have your if you have ability to know to be to say no, to say yes and to say no, to say what you want. If you have the ability to know what you're feeling and to use your anger, sadness, fear and joy to help navigate the space and have give you information about about what you want and what's possible and what life is. And if you have your energetic body, you can feel spaces, you can feel what's happening, the dynamics, the, the flow, the energy flow, then when you're involved in sexual intimacies, which, as we all know, can be really superficial. They can be really superficial and almost kind of abusive or neurotic or fear-based or protection-based or like... really neurotic, really um, tense or like that when you can if, or there's there are these spaces that can open up where you move and she moves or, or she moves and he moves where the movements come out of a dance, this kind of dance together. And the dance is, is like is not serving, some concept you've seen on some sex film or some moves that you're trying to do from some instruction handbook or they're not trying to imitate anybody else. They come from your center and your your presence as a being, as a feminine or masculine being or being together. When the movements come out of that and it's like avoiding uh, orgasm is a way of navigating space 
so that the intimacies can continue. It's like a winning happening game. It's like as soon as, you know, oftentimes the orgasm kind of ends the game or takes it, you know, it's sort of game over. If Yeah, it can be like that. And at the same time, the orgasm is this, is this a reminder of this gap between the being and the box that I was talking about. This gap between moments, there's a gap between time and a gap in space, and there's gaps available, and you can enter the gap, and you can journey together in these spaces. So, like, what does that mean? Like, I think people have some idea about what that means to journey together in a free space. So this gap, we're reminded of it in an orgasm for a moment. And I think we keep seeking the orgasm because we seek this gap between between things, between moments and between spaces and between our being and our, and our psychology. We, we seek this gap. We, you don't need the orgasm to find the gap. You can actually find the gap through navigating to it. So if you, if you hear what I'm saying, if you understand what I'm saying, and you go, okay, I'm going to, like, let's, let's, let's experiment together to find this gap in our five-body intimacy. It can be hours long of journeying together in the gap even before you take your clothes off. I mean, this is, this is what's possible for a human being. And I was recently with a woman who said that after, while, while she was experimenting with um, discovering the, what orgasm is or the space in the orgasm, what did that space is, while she was having the free space to do that, Gaia was talking to her. And Gaia was talking to her and what Gaia said was, thank you. Gaia said thank you for experimenting, for being for being in ecstasy in your five bodies in a way that you've been designed to, because it's not an accident that you were designed for this. And that, you know, I, I go, okay, where did, whoever told me about this? Where did this ever come from? Or where, how am I supposed to, where, like, is this on TV? Is it in the movies? Like, where, where am I supposed to learn about this? And I think the only way to learn about it is experimentation. And the only way to experiment is to keep growing up and keep taking the risks of being vulnerable in places where you would normally shrink up or try to survive. It's like find a way to live in a space where you are clear enough and you have your sort of clarity and you have your bound, you're sent to your grounding cord and your bubble and your ability to say yes and say no and say what you want and ask for what you need and you know, use your feelings as, as rocket fuel with the information and energy to, to navigate your spaces, then this is the way, one, and this is a path, this is a lifelong, never-ending, no-top-end, five-body intimacy journey that we, we're designed to take together. And this, this I want to just encourage as much as possible, wherever I can. And I just want to thank you guys for establishing this space to have conversations like this. I'm sure a lot of the other contributors are adding dimensions to what we're talking about that just, you know, go along with this. So I'm just really happy for what you guys are doing and taking a stand for in the world and the information that you're sharing for everybody on the platform here.
Well, I, there's this inner longing that we have for uh, the evolution of consciousness, I think. And it doesn't happen really in school. And we don't have many examples of it in traditional education environments. But the longing doesn't go away. It might be suppressed or covered with survival needs to theoretically make money or earn a living or get a good job or whatever. But um, I think as a young person today, a lot of the drivers for quote-unquote success that are provided that are provided by modern culture are not very, don't seem fulfilling. They do not seem to be accurate uh, expression of the gratefulness for having been given a human life. It doesn't seem like that. At the same time, there's a, a trap that um, the millennials who are born around the turn of the century have right now, which is this trap of, if I understand it, I can do it. If I understand it, I can have it. If I understand it, I got it. And this is a delusion. It's so easy to fall into that trap because of Google. You know, I can Google anything. I can look up anything and I've got it. And understanding is, is a booby prize. It's third prize. Understanding can, can be necessary and useful, but it is insufficient to give you new results. And for a millennial, it's a complete identity crisis to lose the false security of thinking that if I understand it, I've got it. It's a very big crisis to go through to become a human being rather than a millennial who's got it, the information. So I encourage, I encourage, I encourage you to take the risk, the young people to get it, that if you, got, if you understand it, that's not it. If you can create new results, the results don't lie. So get into experimenting, keep experimenting, see what the results that you can create are. And that, when you can get different feedback from your people about what you're creating, then you have changed. Then you've got it. When you can deliver it to somebody else who can create new results in their life, then you've got it. So these are the indicators that actually are useful, that are far more useful than simple understanding, thinking that you've got it from understanding. And in particularly with regards to the subtleties of navigating the tender interpersonal relationships in your five bodies, learning the skills is so important. And it's not going to... So you know, it's, it's, a, it's almost an epidemic right now in the millennials of how little sex they're having. I'm not sure this is well known, but there's a lot of avoidance of sex because you can't go beep, beep, beep and get a result because it, isn't, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's far more subtle than that. It's the mind is far too slow to navigate subtle interpersonal spaces. And so um, this is a, a huge obstacle that's a, um, uh, an illusion, a mirage that, the millennia, that we have from the modern technology that leads us to think that we've got it when we understand it. And it's really, this is a set of skills. It's a skill, it's a subtle skill-based five-body technology, you know, inner development of skills. It's like, you know, you can't play a, a concerto on a, on a beautiful concerto on a violin by looking it up on Google. It doesn't, you know, if you're going to learn to play violin, it's going to take years of subtle nervous system, emotional centeredness, like 
you know, five body experience. You got to be the space through which the concerto can be played on your violin. You got to be the space through which this can happen in the world. Well, that's how it works also with subtle interpersonal sexual interactions and, and energetic interactions. Like this is, it's a skill based thing. So I really want to encourage the, us all to get the new skills and to get the new skills you need practice 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 and to get the practice you need feedback and coaching from a team and that's what this the whole meetings thing is about the tool of coming together every week to have a, a meeting where you can cut subtle and coach you can start trusting each other to give yourselves wonderful feedback and coaching to to practice the new skills if it's working or not working and this is this is a huge shift and really important Thank you, too. <laughs> you don't have to stop recording, but you can pretend like you stopped recording and then... Can I just say something about that? I just want to say that the video um, input from a pornographic video or porn, you know, computer sex, the is is basically goes straight with the, the nerves of the eye directly into the brain and implants these images into the brain, and it's so direct and so harsh it's like it puts it in as a um, it distorts the nervous system in the brain it distorts the brain in such a way that you that it you that the effects of it last at least a year before you could actually be a human being again before you can actually enter a human reality again to be you know the organic human physical body subtle energetics reality of intimacies with a human flesh person across from you in reality, you, you won't have access to that for a year after you stop watching pornographic videos. So this is serious. This is a kind of a heavy-duty nerve drug that the side effects don't wear off for at least a year from watching porn pornography. And uh, people don't, they're not aware of that. But uh, I think your perception of it is totally accurate. And um, I just wanted to clarify that, that it actually affects the, the brain cells, the, you know, the, the synapses. It implants these images that, won't, that, that interfere with your ability to interact in reality for a year. That's serious damage. People don't know this. It, yeah, the, the, the pornography is really almost like neurological heroin. It, like the visual neurological heroin in, in terms of that, our, that part of our body. It's, it's addictive and it has this huge intensifying um, impact that is addictive and it takes really serious work to, to heal from that.
You know, I, I can only agree with you that it's really difficult to um, bring the background conversation into the foreground so it can be examined so that the you can question the unquestionable. The It's almost like there's a new set of taboos and you can't question the taboo of the um, politically correct feminist. It's a, it's a taboo. <clears throat> so so I, I, I totally agree. It's really... It's challenging, dangerous, it's, it threatens people, it's scary, it's not so effective, and there's no real easy solution, and it has to be done somehow. It's like really the edge of what needs to be done. I wanted to add a, an element to this conversation that is pretty strange, but um, can sometimes help me to understand some of these phenomena. My uh, roommate in college had rats, and um, so I, I, I learned to love rats. I don't know, I used to live with rats. My daughters have rats, pets. I just love rats. And then I, did, I read this study of, this, of the scientists who uh, let rats overpopulate. And when the rats overpopulated, because I, I saw so much human nature in the rats. You know, one gets a great piece of food and the other one wants it. And the first one looks at him and goes, you know, you can't have this. And, you know, and they knock each other. <laughs> and so it's like there's, there's so much human nature in the rat world. They have five fingers, you know, they, they look, they're really relatives of ours. And so when they, when the scientists let the rats overpopulate, their behavior changed, their social behavior changed. You can look this up all over the place, but their social behavior changed in such a way that the overpopulation itself caused this behavior change of, uh, they would turn homosexual, for example, so to stop having babies. They would, uh, some of them would get really like kind of neurotic or psychological kind of sick, so they couldn't even have partners anymore, so they couldn't have sex anymore. They were just too weird to have sex. Um, there would be other other strange behavior patterns that would, you know, prevent sex from happening, and they they would even eat their babies. I mean, this is really weird, but they would abandon their babies or let them die. There's other, and so some of the phenomena that you're describing to me could be a side effect of overpopulation of human beings on Earth. It could be that, and when I think about it that way, I go, ah, this this explains some things to me. <clears throat> it's like nature coming back into balance on its own terms. It's like if we don't bring ourselves back into balance and through conscious decisions, then nature will bring it back into balance in its own terms, which are not often very pretty. And they're kind of bizarre and strange, but and they're terminal. They're like these are like these are organic actions at the level of nature itself taking taking effect. I, so anyway, this sometimes helps me understand some of the weirdness. And I, and I think for me, just like the, the most effective pathway for change is to build new territory, is to create new possibilities and move into the new territory you build and have a really good time out there. So you're out there in, in I want to tell you a story, okay? Like, <clears throat> Not long ago, I was in Spain, in southern Spain, at a cafe, and I was. We sat down in the, in, the, in in Spain. You can have the, the the table and chairs actually out on the street, the little tiny street in front of the cafe, and it was a beautiful morning, and the sun was up, and and so 
we ordered a bottle of just fresh drinking water to drink. So we're sitting there and the waitress, who's this kind of middle-aged Spanish typical waitress, she comes out with this bottle of water and I'm sitting there in this five-body intimacy space with this woman and we're just enjoying each other's company and the, the fifth body part was, you know, our legs were touching together under the table. We were sitting there so we have intimacy with our physical body by the physical touch under the table with the legs, intellectual intimacy through conversation, um, emotional intimacy through through sharing our feelings and like I had just cried a little bit and she was laughing and now I was laughing and and energetic intimacy with being in the same space that was clear and radiating like glowing yellow in archetypal intimacy because we were both working in the same project together and this radiance this glowing this shininess the waitress walks into that space and she's pouring the water into our glasses and she starts singing this kind of opera to us while she's pouring the water into our glasses and it was perfect. It was just wonderful. It was beautiful. And she was in ecstasy and we were in ecstasy. And, and after our lunchtime together, I saw her in the cafe while I was paying. And I, I said, hello, how long have you been doing this waitress thing? She goes, well, I've been doing it for 30 years. And the waitress is 30 years. I go, God, you, how often do you sing while you're pouring water into your customer's classes? She looks at me and goes, I never did that before in my life the first time I ever did that. And I was thinking, like, this, this is how to make change. This is how to create possibility in the world. Because when that kind of a space happens, it changes the morphogenetic field of the human race. Because if you can do it, other people can do it. If you can make new space to go into, other people can get there more easily. So if you, the more often that you can create these kind of spaces, it's the best change agent for the entire world. It's this healing jelly. It's this cream. It's this radiance, a rainbow. It's like this, I don't know, it's like flowers growing out of your back. It's this amazing transformational possibility of, of, of changing the, the human morphogenetic field. I'll tell you one more thing. The fifth body, the fifth body is, uh, has an ability to puncture. It's tough enough to puncture through the status quo. So if you imagine the human ethnosphere, the human ethnosphere is the cloud around the earth of all cultures, the kinds of cultures that can be on the earth. If you can imagine the ethnosphere around there and how most of them are conformed to a kind of status quo. They're limited by a status quo that's been in effect. This patriarchal empire right now or this capitalism or this consumerism, this kind of thing is sort of crusty stuff that holds the morphogenetic field into a certain form. Well, if you're with a person, like if you're making a journey in your fifth body with this, with this other, like a man and a woman together, intimate in this way, you can journey together in, your, in this like fifth body like an elevator. And the elevator goes straight up through these spaces that get higher and higher and higher, more clear, more precise, more pristine, more full of love, more full of archetypal love, more, and they go right through this crusty stuff into the archetypal domains where you can get new information and you can bring it back like a treasure back down into the morphogenetic field of the human race. That also changes what's possible for human beings on earth. So making these journeys in your fifth body like an elevator going up through the, through the crusty stuff through the status quo into the archetypal layers and bringing back these jewels the people around you get the jewels it's really th this is a lot of where 
the the treasures that I have to share with people have come from. It's journeys like this where where I, I just bring it back down and share. It's like an infinite source of jewels and stuff out there that to bring back for people and more. I everybody can do this. Anybody we're designed for this. You know, Gaia has created human beings to be vessels of evolution of consciousness and, and upgrade our, our presence on the earth to these levels. And so that's, to me, facing the problems is, yes, one thing, but creating new new possibility space, new culture space, new evolution is like, that's really a very effective and powerful way to create change in the world. So I wanted to offer that. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate your courage to ask those questions and to to take a, to trust your own inner like your sense of the rightness of things or the of the respectfulness the nobility of a human being or to, to like I, I totally honor that your motivation I have gotten a lot of uh, beeps I call beeps is like a negative feedback which is like um, you know what you're doing isn't working I've gotten a lot of that feedback when I ever try to offer <clears throat> a solution or a, uh, I try to problem solve or try to create, I try to create new options for somebody who hasn't hired me as a consultant. When I, when I offer solutions or vision or something for a person who's in, a, in an unconscious survival mode and is barely using all their resources to hang on to the thing that they have that's that's sort of justifying the way, their life the way that it is right now in a way that they can live with without committing suicide. You know, they're just hanging on to this, this self-image and you're going to offer that you're going to say it's wrong or you're going to question it. And so I've, I've tried that too many times and gotten too many negative feedbacks about it. And I just would share with you that what I'm working on is a totally different thing. It's like instead of applying pressure of like, here's a new possibility, think about this, Try here's this option. Why don't you question? You know, like that is to on the other is to offer a vacuum. So the way to offer a vacuum is to be sincerely curious. So the sincerely is important part of it, and it, the curiosity is the other part. It's a vacuum. It's like you come with not knowing. You come with no answer. You come with you come with this question, and the questions are things like, what do you how, what do you feel about that? How, how is it how do you how is it for you what do you actually feel about that and then people will say I feel fine about it you know I feel I like it or whatever it's good for me it really works for me and then you go yeah but how how does it how do you act what well, how do you feel what is the feeling behind that you know what are your what are you actually feeling about it and and if you can create a sincere kind of vacuum people will say well it, well I'm I'm scared it makes me you know I'm or I'm sad about this or it really pisses me off about this and then then all you need to do is listen to that. You just listen to a person's, when they can finally, when they trust you enough or can get vulnerable enough and just share. You know, I've had 
I was in this one group of people and in, in within a company and this one we were talking about a really touchy issue something like this and this one woman one of the one of the women had one tear drip down her her eye and and this moved the entire organization to a whole new world that one tear and it was like and it came from vacuum it came from being a safe space where she wasn't going to lose face or lose power to if she could actually be vulnerable and honest she could actually admit to herself what was going on about this she could get off it she could try something new but i didn't offer a solution i had no solutions or i only was this listening space of just tell me what you feel about it i only really want to know what you feel about it how do you feel about this and then she was able to share this and this is such a big change so that that's one thing i would offer is a totally a, just a different approach which is to, to, to create a vacuum instead of a pressure. To be a curious, sincerely curious listening space, a safe workbench for them to reflect, you know, to, to bring something to consciousness that was not there before. You're the second consciousness, and as soon as they can admit something to you or share something with you, it, they learn it themselves. And then it's go, whoa, I never knew I was actually angry about this. I never knew this made me really sad like that. And you don't have, there's no judgments, no criticism, nothing like that. It's like truly your own listening. You go, thank you for sharing this with me. That's all I really just wanted to hear. That's all. And that, like, you can try that. Yeah, it's such a minefield. I would be really afraid to say anything about it. Um, because since I have a similar experience to you, um, having having faced my own original induction into the patriarchal empire in the work that I've had to do to upgrade my thought where and grow up and, and get my center back and my authority back and my voice back and my feelings back and my ability to hold space and be unhooked and navigate space and my really there's so much that I've, I've really worked hard to unfold in myself and other people and um, but I have not had that experience myself of, of you know wanting to be something different and um, to try to explain it right now I, I would avoid that personally I would not I, I would be curious about it I would ask people like I said I would be a listening space but I, I have no basis from which to even approach that question and so that's one question i would stay away from myself personally i have no idea how's that for an answer i have no idea and if you really want to know i would would interview other people besides myself who are involved in in those um like spaces and desires and um, urges and things like that and just inquire just be this curious space and go, could you just talk about this? What is it like or how is it? I mean, I don't know, one of the most touching sharings that I've heard from this is from Lana Wachowski, who, who used to be Larry Wachowski, one of the Wachowski brothers who made the Matrix films, among other things. The v for Vendetta and Jupiter Rising, and all these amazing films that they've been doing. Um, but this when Lana Wachowski explained her you know, her sharing about this, I was so touched and so moved and so inspired by that you can find it online as a as a um, 
It was a public talk that she gave, and it's just totally amazing, totally inspiring. So, um, but that's where I would go with this. Yeah. Thanks for your questions. I, uh, I'm happy to go on this kind of conversation journey to, into these areas that are so almost difficult or impossible to approach using uh, kind of modern culture's thought and um, just throw ourselves in and take a look around and see whatever we can find out about it. Um, these movements that you're talking about that are like it's it becomes politically incorrect to so and so or it's um, it's unquestion it becomes unquestionable you cannot question this anymore because of your you're offending so many people and oh my god they might feel something or oh my god they might um, tell stories about you and your reputation could be uh, questioned or damaged because you're so impolite or so incorrect or so whatever. Um, these are really powerful forces in a social environment that force people to conform to these kind of bizarre flows of what's, uh, what the taboo, the current taboo is, to, to obey the taboos, the local taboos. And so um, they're very powerful forces at the, at the level of being cast out or rejected from society in a way that would in our minds immediately lead to death or um, abandonment like that, that we have these abandonment concerns. And, um, my answer to all of that is adulthood initiatory processes, like grow up, like find your center, find your grounding cord, find your bubble, you know, create your own culture, build culture space, start a nano nation of people who, who love your context, who create the rules of engagement and, and the, um, the, the thoughtware out of your context and, and create a nano nation, a country of your own. And, and you can do this. It takes three, four, five, six people. You make a new country and it doesn't, you know, make passports for yourself and just live in your nation. And other people will be attracted or think you're nutcases and it doesn't matter. But you don't have to submit to the, the neurosis of trying to conform to whatever the big social movements are right now because maybe those people are just zombies. I don't know. Maybe they're just following the herd and doing herd behavior. We are herd animals in some ways. We're like sheep and we're sleeping a lot of the time. We're just obeying whatever the latest mode is. And it's so obvious because advertisers can convince us to buy, you know, purple ties or narrow ties or whatever they want to sell. They, they know how to con make the sheep do do this. And so uh, this is no way to be a human being. This is not, uh, not reflect the ability of autonomy, the, the autonomous nature of our ability to choose and ask questions and um, declare what things are. This is, it avoids our innate powers as a human being. And so I encourage people to grow up. Just get yourself initiated into taking radical responsibility for what you do and say and create and take the feedback and shift and go and, and learn and, and get on this evolutionary journey with some people and have a great time. Like go on an adventure journey and have a great time. And like all those people who are conforming or not conforming or worried about conforming, it's like some people, some people like licorice ice cream. I don't know. I mean, you can't argue about taste. So who's, why well, argue about taste? So 
like really be your try to find what you are and be yourself and say what you feel say what you want and don't want and then and then go and some people will love you and some people will hate you but it's better than trying to be gray and adaptive and nice to everybody and think you're going to have a good life you just lay in your deathbed and go god what my life is over what did i do with it you know be a problem you know ask dangerous questions like like ignore ignore the fads you know just go do what you want i mean the world is big and there's a lot of problems to solve and you have a job to do and you have an archetypal lineage that could serve the evolution of the consciousness of humanity on earth you know get with it we need we need edge workers we need people to invent new space so go do it and so you don't have to worry about all this stuff in some ways so i don't know that's my attitude a lot of times it doesn't mean i don't get in trouble i do get in trouble but I, i'm having a great time so <laughs> it seems like you are too it seems like you're having a great time too i really appreciate that Hmm, great, great. Okay, thank you too. Great. Okay. So I'll, I'll write you a paragraph in the next couple of weeks. Like I said, tomorrow I'm on my way out of the country and but after a week or so, I'll get some online time and I'll write a paragraph or something. And, or you can also write whatever you want to fill in that space if you come up with something. You, you know that little paragraph when you click on my face on your website and this paragraph drops down and you can, if you want, if you get inspired to write something, go ahead. Or do you need me to write something? Okay. All right. So I'll do that. But it'll take another week or so. Is that okay? All right. Okay, good. All right, Stephanie, thank you very much for your time and your questions. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>